Welcome to everyone, particularly who's listening or involved online. Thank you for joining us for this series. It's called The Book That Changed the World. And it's based on material, we've said this each week, but it's based on material from James Emery Wise, a pastor in the United States. If you want to find out more, delve a bit deeper, then go and have a listen to James Emery Wise, look at his resources. One thing that's been on my bucket list in my life was to have my own uh, library. I used to go into some friends' houses, and when I'd go in, they'd have a room just dedicated to books. And I've got to be honest, I'd look at it, and I used to think, I want one of those. And some of you are saying, that's coveting. Coveting is when you want their library. I didn't want their library. I wanted my own library. They could keep theirs. I didn't want to take theirs from them. Coveting is you want what they've got. I wanted my own. Well, I've been able to do that the last few years, so I've got a picture up here. You should be able to see it. That's, that's my library at home, and I can't get all the books that I've got uh, on, on there, actually. And people always say to me when they come into the house, which is your favorite book? Well, actually, you just ask me two things. The first thing they ask me is, have you read them all? And my answer to that is, I have read something of all of them. Now, that might be the title page which it is on some of them, but I've read something of every single one. You can't see the top shelves either or the bottom. I've read something of every one of them. And then they asked me this, what's your favorite book? Well, do you know what I do for a living? I really need to say this, but honestly, believe it. It's the Bible. Of all the books that are on my shelf, there is only one book that I read every single day and I go back to. It's the Bible. I just took one of the Bibles off the top shelf today. This is my old Schofield reference Bible. Some dodgy stuff in there by way of theology, but I bought it from a, a junk store. How dare it be in there for one pound many, many years ago in uh, North Wales. I've got lots of different Bibles. The Bible is still the number one bestseller. More than five billion copies have been sold to date. Every single year, more than a hundred million will be sold of the Bible. It's the most translated book of history. I'd encourage you, go to the Wycliffe Translators um, webpage. They've got lists there of how many languages it's been translated into and where the gaps are. But they write on there that the Bible, or at least parts of the Bible have been translated into 3,350 languages. 3,350 languages. Less than 300 to go. And so this has been a huge influence, not just in terms of culture or civilization, but in terms of people's individual lives. Individuals are changed and transformed by the Bible. I have another friend at the gym, actually, he's a PT, he comes along here sometimes, I don't think you're in the room, he tells me sometimes, I was there someday, and then I don't think I've seen him, but he, that's what he says. And he told me his story recently, and you know how his life was changed? There was a man upstairs who saw he was on, a, this is when he was on a bit of a down period, in the room below him, and he go, went to him, he said, I'm a Christian, I'd just like to give you a Bible, and he started to read the Bible. And the Bible came alive in him. It changes lives, doesn't it? It's changed your life, hasn't it, for many of you? Yeah. Did I hear an amen? amen? The Bible is made up of 66 books written by more than 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years in three countries and uh, in three languages and across three continents. 
And yet there's this incredible theme. We've been singing about it. We've been praying about it. I told you the story. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now, if you're, come, if you're here new today, this is a great day to come because we finished the Old Testament, hip hip. We had a great speaker last week, didn't we, in Andrew Wallerton, in the kind of gap between the Testaments. And today we start the New Testament. 27 books in the New Testament, and we've got three weeks to do the whole of the New Testament. So this has only been a global, a, a kind of 30,000 foot view of, of the Bible, but it helps to see how it all fits together. So really, you can think of the part, the Old Testament, as the part before Jesus came, and the New Testament is the part when Jesus came. It is that simple. Of course, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. He is, and we pointed that out. But when he came as the Son of God, God made flesh, that's where the New Testament begins. And so today, we're going to look at the four biographical accounts known as the Gospels. The Gospels of the life of Jesus Christ. A life that never, in the natural seemed deemed for greatness, did it? I don't know whether it's just a Christmas or other times in the year, but there's a poem that was written many years ago about Jesus called One Solitary Life. Anyone remember that one? And the author of that points out how Jesus came born of a peasant, born into a very poor existence, lived in obscurity for 30 years, traveled around, basically his job was an itinerant preacher. The, 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 the authorities and the people turned against him. He died on a cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He never wrote a book himself. He never traveled more than 200 miles. He never traveled overseas. He never traveled more than 200 miles away from his birthplace. And yet this is what the poem concludes with this. 20 centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. He writes, I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, or not, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Jesus Christ is arguably the central figure of the entire human race. His life even marks our concept of time. 2019 AD, Anno I. We know in the year of our Lord, before that BC, he, he, he is the central point of history. And if you ask people about Jesus Christ today, what's scary is how so few have any idea. Isn't it true? They, th they know him as some, some, somebody in history maybe, but they know very little. Mostly, Mostly because they've never read this or these Gospels. They're ignorant, and we are sometimes, because we just haven't read it. I have a friend who's a pastor, or was a pastor, who's retired now, who was in the north end of Birkenhead, or as it said properly, Birkenhead. And he was in the north end of Birkenhead, and he went out sharing the good news of Jesus. And he was giving out the Gospels. So the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he was giving them around to these young teenage boys. One of the boys came up to him, and I'll say it in the accent, the, the boy said it to him. He said, hey, mister. He said, you're giving out those books with the names of my mates on. Mates on. Can I have one? My name's Eddie. <laughs> in case you don't know, there is no gospel according to Eddie. It's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And we're going to look at those books a little bit today. But there are some definite misconceptions. There's ignorance about that central person in those Gospels, Jesus. That's why I encourage you to read them. Choose one this week, read it. One ignorance is that people think Jesus was white. John, when he was speaking a few weeks ago, put a picture up uh, and rightly commented that Jesus didn't look like that. Very unlikely. Jesus was a Mediterranean Jew, guys. He would have had olive skin. He was a Mediterranean Jew, guys. Very unlikely that he was over six foot tall. Honestly, he would have had dark olive skin, less than six. In fact, the Bible says this. This is in, in the book of Isaiah. He says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So I'm going to burst some bubbles right now. If you think Jesus was tall, dark, and handsome, think again. <laughs> he was probably dark, but the Bible, according to that verse, is nothing that you might think, oh, he's attractive. And yet he was super attractive in who he was, which just goes to show that attraction is so much more than what you see on the outside. Amen. So, why are you laughing at that? Excuse me, I wasn't meant to be anything about me. I was <laughs> so we have these four independent eyewitness accounts, the Gospels. Number one then, some questions to answer. Number one, what is a Gospel? What do we mean when we talk about these biographies being Gospels? Well, very simply, the word Gospel comes from an ancient word, Anglo-Saxon word, meaning Godspell. It was called Godspell, which means good news. In the Greek, it's a word also that means good news. So simply, the Gospels are the good news about Jesus Christ. It's good news. That's what we've been given. That's what we've been given. So a Gospel is a good news about Jesus. Secondly, who were these authors? Matthew was one of the original followers of Jesus, one of the 12 that Jesus called to himself. So one of those that was an eyewitness account to much that went on. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors didn't have a great reputation and for good reason. Most tax collectors were iffy, they were on the make, they sided with the dominant force of the day and so Matthew would not have had a good background. He was certainly probably a crook. And then he met Jesus. Any ex-crooks in the room? <laughs> Just me. He changes lives when you meet him. Matthew encountered Jesus and wrote down all that he saw Jesus doing. Then there was Mark. Mark was a follower of Jesus who was a protege of two other men mentioned in the Bible, Barnabas and Paul. And then later on, there's evidence to show that he became a close companion of the Apostle Peter. In fact, what many people believe, and this seems quite possible in the way it's written, Mark was really writing down what he heard Peter, who again was a close disciple and later an apostle as Matthew was, he wrote down what he heard Peter saying. So, so Mark's very much Peter's gospel, but Mark was the author of it. Then you get Luke. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke is the only one of the four who wasn't a Jew. He was one of the first Gentiles, like non-Jews, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Luke was a physician, and what we can tell from the book of Luke and the book of Acts, because he wrote that as well, an excellent historian. He was into detail. He was training and gifted. He was a close friend of the apostle Paul, and he wrote with a very clear mind. Then we have John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was the one that writes in his gospel that he was the one Jesus loved. Just want to point out it was John that wrote that. None of the others record that. So John thinks he's special. And he might have been. There is some evidence to say that John was actually a cousin of Jesus. Now this isn't John the Baptist. But there is some evidence to say that Mary, Jesus' mother, and John's mother, John the Beloved, were related and that they were cousins. So when he says the one that Jesus loved, it could simply be he's saying, because I've been with him longer than any of you. I've been with him since childhood because we're cousins, don't you know? And John's gospel is very, very different than the others. It was John whom Jesus said to at the cross, would you look after my mum? That's my paraphrased version. Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. So it was this sense of, it was probably keeping it in the family. Just a sidebar, if I may just say this. Families have responsibilities to those that are widowed and lonely and aging. And let's not forget that in our society. Did you hear me? Yeah. I'm, I'm stoked by some of the people in this church that come from overseas. Sometimes you talk to them. Some who are working here at Adam Brooks. You hear about their family back home and how they tell you they're sending large proportions of their income here back to the family there to support them. I think that's fantastic. I think that's biblical. Hello? I'm just writing my notes, pause for thought. We have responsibilities. By the grace of God, my mum's in a nursing home and she has adequate resource from pensions, from Unilever, Praise the Lord for Unilever. I know they do some stuff that we don't like as well, but they pay my parents' pension. And, and so she's well supported. If she wasn't, we as children would have a responsibility to make sure she was. Just put that out there. It was John who was asked to watch over Mary in her old age when Jesus had left. So why, question number three, why are there four Gospels? Why four? Well, Three reasons I can think of. The first reason is because of the importance and the centrality of the work of Jesus Christ. If anyone deserves four accounts of his life, Jesus does. But secondly, a second reason is because the life of Christ was so rich, so diverse, so multifaceted that it called for four approaches. I think a good way to look at the Gospels is to look at it like four different painters who are painting the same thing, but they'll see a different angle. Or they may be just slightly standing in a different place and they'll see something different. A lot of them are similar. John is dissimilar to the other the three. We'll say something more about that in a minute. But they're painters who are painting what they see. So there are four that are recording, to the fullest possible extent, a reflection of the life of Christ. And then thirdly, this is really important, 
Rather than just taking Matthew's word, we've got Mark's word and Luke's word and John's, the beloved's word. So there's this validation that comes together from all of them as they seek to say what happened in the life of Christ. These are independent biographical accounts. So, number four, what do the Gospels tell us? Well, in a sentence, and I've already said it, the life of Jesus Christ. A Jew born to a virgin, a miraculous birth, who lived in Israel, Palestine, for some 33 years, died on a cross, buried in a tomb. In the Gospels we have records of his life, people that he met like Zacchaeus or the woman caught in adultery. In other words, real live people whose lives he transformed by meeting them. We have these stories, we have miracles that are recorded, feeding of thousands of people, all leading to the time when he walks into, his, into Jerusalem and they cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, but within days, the whole community is turned against him and they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And the record is, he dies in a borrowed, he's put in a borrowed grave, but three days later, he rose from the dead. And if there's no resurrection, we have no gospel. But he rose from the dead. He showed himself to the disciples and to others. And then he said in the upper room with the disciples, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And then one day I'm going to return, but in a different way than I came the first time. When every eye will see and every knee will bow. And so he ascends into heaven. He says to the disciples, in the same way that you see me go, so I shall return. So there's a physical bodily return, which we might look at in the last week, a little bit in Revelation. And he will come again. And that's the story that goes right the way through each of the, test, the, test, the Gospels that testify of Jesus. What's amazing about the Gospels is the consistency of how each of them fits together and says it's slightly different but still says the same thing. So there's some say, oh, there's contradictions. No, there isn't contradictions, but there is often a nuance primarily based on who they're seeking to write the gospel to. Now, we know they're writing to us, but in the original, they had a, a group of people in mind that they were writing to. So let's just go through each of the gospels and say what was particularly unique to each of them. Number one, Matthew. Matthew, as I said, was one of the original 12, became an apostle. And, and if you read Matthew, he records more of the teaching of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. For example, Matthew records the whole of the entire Sermon on the Mount. The other Gospel writers don't do that. He goes into some detail. And Matthew, when you read Matthew, you need to just have this idea. Who's he writing for? He's writing primarily, no, not exclusively, but primarily for the Jews. So when he starts his book, he starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And guess where he goes back to? Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Obvious, isn't it? He goes right the way back to Abraham. And he's basically saying to these Jewish readers, if they're going to listen, they need to know what's the credentials of this man, Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah. 
And the credentials is, he's a Jew going back to Abraham. He's a son of David, a very Jewish term. And he starts, and he points out, and he edits certain Old Testament passages that the Hebrews would have known in order to see Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew writes particularly for the Jews. Then we have Mark. You can read 16 chapters. It's the shortest of books. And it's full of life and zest. In case you don't know, Mark was the youngest of the gospel writers. And it reads like that. It's pow-wow. It's on the scene. And it finishes really abruptly. So abruptly that some people think that Mark missed off some things that he meant to put it. It's just finished. It's like a comic movie. That's why I wore my Marvel t-shirt today. It's like, it's all about action. It's all about the miraculous. It's electric. It's fast-paced. It's energetic. And guess what? More miracles are recorded in Mark than any of the other Gospels, as you'd expect. More miracles are recorded. In fact, there is one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Anybody online or, listen, or listening to me in the room here, any know what the one miracle was that recorded in all four? Okay, I'll tell you then. The feeding of the 5,000. It's in all four of the Gospels. Mark records two feedings of 5,000 people. Yeah, the one with the, the loaves and fishes, but there's another one that he records, I think it's 4,000 that he says. It, it's as if he's evident all these miracles that are going on. So one of Mark's favorite words in the Gospels is amazed. Everyone was amazed. Amazed. The essence of what he's trying to write is the miraculous nature of Jesus. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word gospel is only mentioned 12 times. Eight of those appear in the book of Mark. He's not trying to write an accurate biographical, step-by-step, line-by-line story. He's showing Jesus is the miracle man, so he's the Messiah. He also talks quite a bit about persecution, which again you'd expect because Peter experienced some of that and Peter's feeding him some of the lines. And Peter knew and saw suffering and discipleship and how it went together and Mark records that. Mark is one of my favorite gospels. And then we have Luke. Luke. Dr. Luke. He's accurate. What was happened is there were already some gospels that were around and Luke wanted to verify the claims that were coming. So he said, I'm going to go and record accurately from eyewitness events because there were some false stories that were starting to emerge. And so Luke said, I want to get the detail. I want to know what happened. So he goes and interviews. And this is what he says at the beginning of his book. This is Luke 1. He writes, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have fulfilled, been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So he states right at the beginning, verses 1 to 4, that was why he's written this. He wants you to be certain. Remember, he was a Gentile. And so he had some skepticism, and there was others that was 
cynical about Jesus and, uh, and skeptical, and so he said, I want to get this down accurately about Jesus so as we can answer your questions. Who Theophilus was? We don't know. Great name, Theo, God. Don't know what the second part of his name means, but uh, Theophilus was probably the one that sponsored Luke to write the book. Because how many of you know it takes, those of you doing a PhD in the room, you've got some sponsors, you're glad for your sponsors, aren't you? All right, maybe not. (laughs) Anyone got one called Theophilus? Theophilus was the one who was supporting Luke, probably, to write his gospel about Jesus. Can I say, in a few weeks' time, we're going to take up a vision offering. Part of what we do with our vision offering is we give it to work outside of ourselves. And one of the things we've done historically, we're not doing this right now, but we used to support a couple who were working in Bible translation. In fact, they wrote some of the software the Bible translators use to this very day to help them. Some of you don't remember them, Steve and Kathy Bartram. I had an email from Kathy this week which kind of triggered this thought in me. That means we are in some way sponsoring the advance of the gospel through the translation of the Bible. Do you know the U version that we have on our, our notes, in our, bi- on our, our, our uh, devices, phones and stuff? Thanks, Becky, on the front row. Um, and your tablets. The, the U version people put part of the income that they get to help in Bible translation to go across the world. That's like a Theophilus that's sponsoring a Luke to write his gospel. We do that. We currently give money and we will continue to do to the Harrys who are in Central Asia to a church plant. Just got another email this week from, from him of how they're going into other nations to help train church planters. That means you and I, because we've given some money, are part of that. Don't ever forget that. We sit here in our comfortable seats. They're risking their lives, but we're involved in that because we've given. Did I hear a, 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 an amen? amen? Aren't you glad we do that? And we'll continue to do that because we want the gospel and the message of Christ to go out across the whole earth. And then there is, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there is John. John is the most theological. John is the most philosophical. John is different to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You may, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you may have heard the term synoptic. Anyone heard that term? The, the synoptic gospels. That's you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic just means similar. That's what the word synoptic means. Similar in style, similar in recording the same messages. But John, he takes a totally different tact. He comes at a different angle. So when the others start with a genealogy of the life of Jesus, Jesus, John doesn't start like that. He starts deep, man. And he starts, I don't know whether I put it in my notes, he starts with, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what he's doing is, he's saying to those that are listening on, the Greeks at that time, they thought, they had this thought, that the universe started with a Word. And he's basically saying to them, yeah, you're right, but the Word was God. And so he's, he's kind of topping his hat, tipping his hat to them, saying, yeah, you, something you're saying is right, but the Word is not an obscure, out there, verbal statement. The Word is a person. In the beginning was the Word. And then he points out all about 
Jesus being the Word. It is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but has not understood it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. Now, He wasn't just writing in order to speak to the Greeks. The whole reason for John's letter is stated, John's gospel is stated in this, John 20, 30, 31. He writes this, Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of disciples which are not recorded in this book. So there's more. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, the word believe in John's gospel comes up 98 times. In fact, what he's trying to do is he's pushing the readers into a corner. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe who he is? That's why I'm writing to you. And he gets more and more awkward with what John records because he records the intimate conversations that the other writers don't have. And all the time, he's pointing to the claims of Jesus and who he was. John was very clear. Jesus was the Messiah. When I was teaching at one event, the Bible studies, one of the mornings, I took the seven statements, seven being the number of completion in the Bible, of Jesus in, in the book of John. Because Jesus uses a very particular and specific statement to describe who he is. He says, I am. I am. And the Jews who heard him say, I am, knew exactly what he was saying because at that point they went to pick up stones to stone him because he was blaspheming. I don't get it when people say to me, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. That I am phrase was reserved only for God. And God, when he revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament the, at the burning bush, he said, Moses is saying, you told me to go up and lead your people. I've got to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Who shall I say has sent me? And God reveals his name to Moses. I am. And the Jews were so conscious that this was a holy word that they refused to use that name for God. It's what we talk today as Yahweh. So whenever they used the name God, Yahweh, they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't say, I am. It's too holy. Even when they wrote it, they'd leave a gap. They still do that today because it's a holy name. And then Jesus comes and he says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's claiming to be God himself. And so they want to stone him and kill him. And he still does that today. He still makes the claim, I am God. That's the Gospels. In 35 minutes, <laughs> the Gospels. Let's just look at this claim as I finish with this claim of Jesus to be God. We have to do something with that. Either Jesus was a stark raving lunatic when he said that, that his mind was somehow psychologically affected, that there were no other signs in the records of his life that that was the case. Either he was a lunatic in this way or he was a liar. If he was a liar, we have a problem. 
Because the whole moral structure and fiber of society today is still based on the teachings of Jesus and the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. If he was a liar, we really need to build society differently because the moral code that we go by can always be rooted back into Jesus. If he was a liar, we've got a problem. If he was a liar, why didn't he just confess when, when he's given the opportunity, we're going to crucify you because you're claiming to be God. He says, I, no, I was just kidding. I'm not really. If he was a liar, he could have just said it and saved his life. He could have just fessed up, but he didn't fess up. He claimed to be who he said he was. Third option, of course, is just to say, and lots of people still do this today. Oh, he was a good man. Maybe even a prophet. But that's all. Just a good man. There's a lot of people that think that about him today. But there's a real problem with that. He didn't claim to be just a good man. Some of you have heard this before. We use it in the Alpha course. But C.S. Lewis, who was a, a brilliant mind, we know him for the Narnia Chronicles of Narnia, but he was a, a, an academic in Oxford and part of his life here in Cambridge. He wrote this. He says, I'm, just, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying a really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. He adds, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. So the only other option, lunatic, liar, or Lord. Messiah. The promised one that Matthew knew was from the lineage of Abraham. The Mark, the one that Mark recorded who did many miracles. The accurate fulfillment of testimonies that Luke reported. And the word that came from heaven as the very bread of life itself. Jesus that John records. I am. Many of us have already responded to Jesus. Of course, we know this Jesus has recorded in the Gospels. Maybe some of you don't. Can I just say to all of us this week, as well as anything else you do, just take one of the Gospels. If you want Mark, if you want to know more about miracles, read Mark. 16 chapters, you get it done really quickly. If you want a bit more theology, a bit more philosophical stuff, go to John and get a little bit confused and then ask yourself, what's he going on about? Read those I am statements and bask in the amazing person that Jesus did.